0: But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It's the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head.
1: Thank you, Ange. Well, uh, good evening, guys. I had to actually rehearse saying that. If you think I'm lying, it's pathetic. I actually did. Good evening. It's weird to see you in the evening time like this, but it's so good to be together. I know um, facilities might change and addresses might change, uh, but I always have to keep in mind, and we all do, that our God never changes. And so that we worship the same God tonight that we do in Phonics or Dexter or wherever we are. And so there's a great comfort in just thinking about that. And I also do want to say, too, uh, just a huge thank you to Mountain View uh, for hosting us. They've been really generous and hospitable uh, for us to be here tonight. So I want to thank Tom Santanilis and all their staff. They've just been incredibly helpful and thankful. And so could we just thank them by giving them a for of seriously? They've gone above and beyond in helping us out today, and so we're just so thankful for them. Um, but man, this, this, this evening we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and our passage, it has a message for us, um, let's just be honest, that we don't really like to talk about. Uh, we avoid the subject, honestly, as best we can, and so uh, it's it's pretty clear from what Anne just read that our passage is speaking about death, it's talking about death. Um, even when we use the word died or death. We, we try to avoid it at all costs, don't we? I mean, I think about how um, often we just say things like, so-and-so is no longer with us, or we say things like they passed on or they passed away. And now we even live in a day and age where, when it comes to a funeral or a memorial service, we even call those things celebration of life services. Uh, we, we don't even like to call them what they are. So we avoid the conversation, and we even avoid the word. Um, And the irony about that, though, is that death is the one thing that all of us have in common. It's the one thing that all of us have in common. And if you think about it, we always gravitate towards talking about things that we have in common with other people, don't we? That's why you might try to have a conversation with somebody, and you're like, man, we have nothing in common. And so those conversations feel difficult, right? You run out of things to talk about. And there's other times where uh, you can talk for hours and hours with somebody because you share so many things in common with them. So in one sense, you would think that us talking about death would be something that we always talk about because of our commonality in it. So why is it not more common to talk about it? Well, you might say uh, maybe because of fear or anxiety. Uh, Maybe that's why we don't talk about it. Maybe because it's just a generally sad um, topic to even bring up. Those are all true. But I think there's a deeper reason why you and I don't like to face the reality of death. And that is because death is actually foreign to the way that God made us. It's foreign to our original design. Death is not in the original design of creation. Death came as a result of the curse that was put upon this world. And that curse came as a result of our sin. So death is not in our essential wiring, you could say. I mean, if you could think back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you could even flip there just two pages in your Bibles, and you'll see in verse 11, it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. So it's no wonder that in really a true sense, we recoil from death because it's foreign to the way that we are made. So here we are, though, naturally uncomfortable with the topic of death, yet awkwardly, Ecclesiastes has no problem Talking about it. Ecclesiastes is not afraid to talk about death, not because it likes to be depressing, not because the author is a fatalistic author or anything. Ecclesiastes is not afraid to talk about death because it knows that death, uh, it knows. It's not afraid to talk about death because it knows that there is more than just life here under the sun. It knows that. I mean, if you're just joining us, We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes since the beginning of the year, and we've been following this person named the teacher, vaguely named, we probably assume he was Solomon, and he has explored all of life under the sun. Life as you and I see it and know it, life in the here and now and uh, he's talked about the different things that we experience as he sets aside God in these different moments, and he's asking this question, is there lasting gain? Is there a significance to be found in this world? And everything he's encountered so far, he's equated to vapor or smoke. We've talked about it like that thing that on a cold day, you walk out in the morning and you go with your breath and you could see it, but then it's quickly gone like that. He says our life is like that. Whether it's work or our wealth or pleasure or knowledge or other dreams, they all disappoint us. They don't last and they don't satisfy. That's what we've seen. And one of the sharpest realizations that he's made is that death death is the thing that kind of messes everything up. It's death that messes it up. This book has had a lot to say about death. Nearly every chapter has touched on this subject. But today's passage is probably the most poignant treatment on death in the entire book. And it wants us to face up to its reality and tell us how we can live meaningful lives in the face of death. And so what we see this morning is this. This should be on the screen for you. But in verses 1 through 6, we see him say that death is certain. We see the thing that is certain for all of us. And then in verses 11 through 12, we see that in many ways death is uncertain. The timing of our death is uncertain. And then in verses 7 through 10, so right there in the middle, we get to the heart of what he wants to encourage us in how to live a meaningful life in the midst of death. And we see that in the face of an uncertain, certain death, there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of things that we should be pointing our eyes to in how we live right now. So let's look in verses 1 through 6 and explore kind of what is certain about our lives. Let's read again, what does it say? But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As is the good, so is the sinner, as he who swears is, as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Uh, So there are many things in life that we don't know whether or not we will experience those things, but here uh, he's talking about that, and he's talking about the things that we all will experience. If you look in verse 1, what does he say? He's talking about how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. This is meant to be a comforting statement. This is basically saying God's people are in God's hands. That's meant to be comforting for you. You can see this in places like Deuteronomy 33 where it talks about God's people being in his hand. You can fast forward to the Gospel of John and Jesus says um, that no one will pluck his people out of his hand, right? It's a comforting thought. But in light of that comforting thought, it says there's something we don't know. Will our future have love or hate in it? I don't know. We don't know. But we all know one thing for certain that the future holds and it doesn't matter who you are. Before we arrive there, you see these seven pairs in those two, first two verses. You see love and hate, righteous and wicked, good and evil, clean and unclean, sacrifices, people who make sacrifices who don't sacrifice, the good person, the sinner, those who swear an oath, those who shun an oath. What's the point of all these pairings? Well, it's to give you simply every category and spectrum of person. It's to say no matter who you are, from this end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum, we all experience the same thing. Well, what is that? Look in verse 3, what does it say? The same event happens to all. What event is that? If you look at the end of verse 3, it's very straightforward. After we live, we go to the dead. So regardless of whether you do what is right and whether you do what is wrong, whether you love or hate, whether you be categorized as a good or an evil person, whether you are clean or unclean, whether you keep your promises or you avoid them, Death is still hanging out at your door because ultimately, verse 3 reminds us that all of us have contributed to the problem. Do you see that in verse 3? What does it say? The human heart is full of evil. Evil meaning just we don't believe and do what God says is good and right. Our hearts are full of that kind of stuff during all of our days on this life, and after that, we die. This is the story of human life under the sun, and that sun is going to eventually set on every single one of us. Verse 3 even calls our death what? What does it say? Our death is an evil. It calls it evil. Evil has this sense of misery here. It's not like a a moral thing that he's talking about, but a miserable thing. It's the one overarching thing that makes our lives that that breath, right? It's, It's an evil thing, meaning this is not the way that it's supposed to be. No doubt, I think the majority of us, we try to spend our days ignoring death. And so we sit here in a moment like this where we actually begin to talk about the subject and we say it's not the way that it's supposed to be, we all kind of nod our heads and we go, yeah, it's not the way that it's supposed to be. But there are some of you in this room, there's some of us who live with the harsh reality of death every single day, don't we? We can't avoid it. The thought that death is waiting is clear to us because as we gather for dinner around our tables, maybe there's that empty chair that reminds you of death. Maybe there's the car seat that's still waiting in the box because the baby did not come home. It reminds us, right? There's the medical bills that come, they remind us, right? Death's shadow can cast a cloud over every special occasion in some people's homes, every relationship, even our day-to-day work and it threatens to rob us of every last drop of joy that can be had in this life. And so some of you sit there and you say, yeah, death is an evil thing, and it tastes miserable, and I taste it every day. But still, yet, death is certain for all of us. We don't need to obsess over it, but in a sober way, we're supposed to consider it. And in verses four through six, you're told why. What does it say? But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. We're told why. We need to consider it. It says what? Because there is an advantage to living. Because when you're living and you haven't died yet, you're aware that you're going to die. That's literally what it's telling you. But if you're dead, you're not, like, aware of it in that way, right? It's pretty straightforward, right? It's very interesting. If you look down at verse 10, it's showing us that death brings an absolute finality to the opportunities in our lives. What does it say? There is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which is just literally an Old Testament way of saying the place of the dead, right? There's none of that. Where you are going? Right, so his point in these verses is that it's better to be alive and be a dog, which was not a positive term. This is not talking about your your precious labradoodle or somebody that you love, you know what I mean, kind of thing. This is, this is a demeaning term, actually, like it's better to be a dog who's living than a lion who's dead. A lion meaning like a great person, okay? Why? Because the living know that they're going to die. But the dead, look what they have. Nothing. Right? They have nothing. They have no reward. Right? They aren't even remembered. See, the time is coming when all the things that you and I think is most important in this world all of your strongest emotions in life, your love, your hate, your jealousy, the time is coming when all that will vanish and it'll be forgotten. And so the point is simple. To be alive is to have opportunity in our hands in a way that we do not have when we're dead. Guys, in life, if we know something is going to happen to us, uh, naturally we try to prepare for it, don't we? We try to prepare for it. If not, we regret not living with that opportunity as it approaches. And at times, even when that thing arrives, it's embarrassing, isn't it, right? So we're faced with things that we know are coming all the time, we have to live in light of them, whether it's a thing like a test, whether you're in school right now, you know a test is coming, it's certain that it's coming, so you can prepare, you can, with the opportunity of time that you have, get ready for that, right? If you don't, that'll be embarrassing, maybe you'll regret it, right? Uh, Every week, I have, this moment that I have to prepare for. If not, I would stand up here and be like, I don't know what to say to you guys, right? Let's we'll just pray. You know? I could do something like that. Or maybe in your work, you have a presentation you have to give. You have to prepare for that. Or even if you're just gonna make dinner, right? You know that you have to think, what am I gonna make for dinner? I need to buy the things, I have to cook, I have to allot this time. Right? Seasons in life are changing. Summer is coming. We've we've been reminded of that this weekend, right? I was bummed that the rain came back. But the last few days have been amazing, right? And it all reminded us like, oh yeah. Remember that thing, summer, where it's nice out and you go outside and you do different things? Right? See, when that comes, I'm often quickly reminded like, oh yeah, summer's coming and I've, I've just added all these pounds. You know, I could wear all this clothing in the wintertime so I can prepare and act like summer is going to actually come this summer and live with the opportunity I have to get ready for that right? Because I'm not gonna wear as much clothing, my kids will want to go to the pool, whatever it is, I might be embarrassed if I don't prepare for something like that, right? There are things in life that we are constantly, we know that they're coming, whether we want them to or not, and we prepare for them. And Ecclesiastes wants to press home the point that death is certain for us all. What's uncertain? What's uncertain? Look at verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared in an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. So we have the opposite extreme here. We tend to live as if the one thing that is certain for all of us isn't going to happen. But the things that, we've, that are actually uncertain, we live as if they're certain. That's what he's doing here. Uh, we are people in life who are much given to prediction and prediction, if you think about it, it implies control. That's why we love predictions, We want to control things. We, we imagine that we understand the world and that we can see how it's going. This week I just read a few examples of this where people were constantly surprised. Back in 1825, um, a, a review called the Quarterly Review Uh, Mentioned in there, uh, somebody who said, what can be more palpably absurd than the prospect of a locomotive traveling twice as fast as a stagecoach? People basically saying, like, what's this new car thing I'm hearing about? That's not going to go twice as fast as a stagecoach, right? I don't think they were right. right. Seven years before the introduction of an anesthesia in 1846, there was a French surgeon who said the abolishment of pain in surgery is impossible to achieve. I'm glad he's wrong, Right? Eight years before the first ever successful operation for stomach cancer in 1881, there was a British surgeon who says, the abdomen, the chest, and the brain, those things can never be operated on. They can't be opened. He was wrong. The IBM chairman, Thomas Watson, predicted in 1943 that a world market for computers would only be about five. Only five computers in the whole world market, right? You have one in your pocket right now, okay? A British astronomer said in 1956 that space travel is utter nonsense. Right now you're going to go on vacation there someday, maybe I don't know. Right? All these people were really smart and they were really wrong, right? Life is unpredictable; it doesn't always go the way that we think it will. In verse 11 through 12, are pointing this out. It's saying, yeah, of course, maybe nine times out of ten, the race is to the swift and the battle's to the strong. Right, nine times out of ten, the sensible person usually does know how to balance the budget, and so there's food on the table. Right, the brilliant normally do get the best paid jobs, and the well-educated typically get the breaks, but not always. Why? For time and chance happen to them all. That's what it says in verse 11. The word chance is actually a really bad translation. It's literally time and happenings happen to them all. In other words, situations arise, circumstances change, unforeseen events occur. But you cannot know the future. It continues on, just like the fish swimming happily along, or a bird landing for some food, then out of the blue they're trapped and caught and they never saw it coming. It's exactly the same way, you and I, men and women, often have their lives turned upside down by a disaster that we never saw coming in which we always thought if it ever did happen, it would happen to somebody else, it wouldn't happen to me. This unpredictability touches close to home and honestly starts at a really young age. I mean, I love asking my kids what they wanna be when they grow up. Uh, My three-year-old daughter right now says that she wants to grow up and be a princess, you know? I don't have the heart to tell her it's not going to happen because we're not royalty and I don't know many royals that are looking for wives here in Gresham. So, um, but, you know, uh, th- I'm not going to break you know, for that bad news or something, okay? But as my kids age, right, their vocational dreams become more realistic. So my son wants to be a writer, my, my daughter a teacher, and Gus most recently said he wants to be a pastor, right? So we'll see how that goes. But um, as our vocational dreams change, what matters to us changes as well, right? We want a spouse, we want children, we want a house, maybe in a certain part of town with a a big dining room where we can welcome everybody in, right, to laugh and eat together. We simply might want to grow old and happy with somebody else. We want to have grandchildren, maybe. Ecclesiastes says, maybe you'll do all those things. Maybe you won't, right? Maybe you won't make it to the end of the week, Maybe you'll get that job. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll get married and have kids. Maybe you won't. This unpredictability, it's so hard for us, isn't it? I mean, so much so that we will even try and control our lives to an extent where we try to use God in the process. But true faith is not about control. True faith is not about trying to manipulate God so that he will do as we wish. That's just called idolatry. That's not faith. Can you see what God's word is saying to you here in these verses? It's saying, put your faith in something else that is not under the sun. Because one event under the sun might change all of your plans. And often you don't even know what you want. For man does not know his time. I mean, this preacher honestly sounds a lot like, the writer of James in the New Testament. This should be on the screen for you. James says, listen, you who say today or tomorrow will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on in business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What's your life? You're a mist, there's that same word, right? You're here for a little while, then it's gone. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The great Yoda, right? In the greatest Star Wars movie, Empire Strikes Back, this will be on the screen. Said this to Luke Skywalker, all his life, he's looked away to the future, the horizon, never his mind on where he was, right? He was probably reading Ecclesiastes and James, I imagine, Yoda, he had a Bible and wherever he was. Guys, these verses are the book of Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. These are the, this is Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. It reveals the heart of the purpose of this book, This book is written in part to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all, to know it all, to do it all, to achieve it all, to be happy forever, to have all the answers, to never be left scratching our head and be remembered by every single person for all time. That's what we hope for. That's what the world will tell you you should run after. But what guarantee is there that tomorrow won't be our last? And if you knew that, how would you live today? That is the whole point of Ecclesiastes. So the question for us is, on the one hand, my death is certain. On the other hand, the timing of my death is uncertain. So what should I do in the meantime? And that's what he spends this middle section doing. He shows us a meaningful life that we can live in the face of death. Look in verse 7. It says, go, eat your bread and joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which sounds uh, horrible to say that. He just means short life. All the days of your vain life, right, that he has given you under the sun. Because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. This is not the first time that this author has told us to enjoy life, right? He's told us in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 8, and he's going to tell us to do it again in chapter 11, right? But never in such strong terms has he told you to go and enjoy life. There's actually five commands here. All the verses 1 through 6 and 11 through 12, it's just describing life for you. You can't do anything about it. And then verses 7 through 10, he's telling you to do five different things. There's five imperatives here. It's interesting. And right at the start you get this little word go we're not just told eat your food with joy it says go and eat your food there's an urgency here in other words he's telling you set about it as if you mean to do it and you know what you're about so go set about to do it like you mean it like right, go enjoy your food right? eat and drink with gladness and joy and the second half of verse 7 shows us that these things are a gift from God. It says, for God has already approved what you do, right? So how do we make sense of verse 7? What, what, so what this approval language is saying in verse 7 is simply this. It's saying that God takes pleasure in your pleasure. He's given it to you. So on his terms, enjoy it. Enjoy it under his good and generous rule. Guys, again, we're touching on the heart of Ecclesiastes here. This is saying to you, life, you guys, is a gift. It is a gift. See, at the heart of Ecclesiastes, we are beginning to find what a meaningful life looks like, aren't we? We're here. It's telling you that it's actually gift. It's not gain in where you'll find a meaningful life. Gift and not gain is our motto as Christians. The world's motto is gain. Gain. If you remember back to chapter one, what did he say? His big question that he asked in chapter one in that big poem, if you remember back to the first week, that gave you the whole tension of the whole book, was what gain is there in this world? He's gaining something and then he loses it. He's back to square one. We talked about it with the the pile of laundry, right? That you you do and then you put it all in the drawers and then the next day it's all in the laundry. You know, you're like, what in the world? I did nothing, you know? Life is like that. And death is the great equalizer. If you think you have gain, you get to the end of your life and you face death and you go, what was that for? There is no gain. But here it's telling you that's not the motto for you and I as Christians. The motto is life is gift. It's gift. A meaningful life is found in gift. Right? We, we are in birthday season right now as a family. And that means there's a lot of birthdays and that means lots of gift buying okay? And as a parent, there's probably nothing, mo- I don't, I, I like, I can think of that I like more than giving my gifts kids that they like, right? I love giving them a gift that they like and them opening up and seeing the look on their face, right? It's, it's, an off- it's an awesome thing. I love it, okay? But there's nothing worse, and I'm being, I'm exaggerating, there's obviously things worse than this, okay? But there's nothing worse in one sense, them opening a gift, thank you, and then they never even touch it, right? They never even touch it. Maybe they destroy it, I don't know, we all know this, that there's basic ways that you can treat a gift. There's actually three basic ways. The, one, the first way you can treat a gift is you can trash it, right? You can disregard its value. You can dispose of it, whether you just leave it in the box, you never take it out, or you could just abuse it and ruin it and carelessly destroy it. Another response to a gift is you can treasure it, right? You could put it up on the shelf like a trophy. You can never touch it, right? You just admire it, right? So there's people who have plates in their house that you're not allowed to eat off of, right? I don't understand that but I have to at least admit there's baseballs in my house that you can't throw, okay? That doesn't make sense to other people because if if someone hit it or signed it or something, right? Okay, so there's a different way. You can treasure it. You can just set it up as a trophy. But there's a third way to treat a gift, and that's the way this is talking about, right? You could take it out for a spin, right? You could put it to good use. You could steward it well and enjoy it. You do with it what it was meant to do. And anybody who loves anybody who gives somebody a gift, understands this. There's a great joy in giving someone a gift and them enjoying it for what it was used for. And the preacher is saying that God is just like that. As he gives us gifts, it is a sign of his pleasure in us. When we enjoy his gifts, we are in some way experiencing God's favor The only right way to respond to God's good gifts and to his pleasure in giving us the gifts of food and wine and family is to go, set out to do it, to enjoy them in that way. Verse 8, he continues on, let your garments always be white, let not oil be lacking on your head. This doesn't make much sense to us, but back in this day, people who were distraught, they would wear sackcloth and ashes to show their grief. But if you had a a sense of joy and happiness in you, people would wear white garments to reflect the heat of the sun, and they would use oil to protect their skin and make themselves look presentable. So in a real way, he's saying, show that you are joyful, that you're experiencing joy, live that way. Verse nine, he's saying, enjoy life with your spouse whom you love. You could equate here, just enjoy relationships, enjoy your friendships that God's given you, enjoy your family, enjoy your neighbors. But specifically saying, enjoy your spouse, cherish and protect the person that God has given to you, right? If you're married, don't downplay this, right? We are told, live, we're not told here to like just live with your wife. We're not told to put up with your wife, rather enjoy life with your wife. If you're too busy to enjoy the life that you have together, then you're just too busy, Right? If you do not enjoy each other, then it is likely that you're simply taking what you can from each other in order to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you the gain that you're looking for, right? You may use each other to gain something that'll turn out to be gain in some way, but you're going to lose each other in the process. A spouse here in this way or relationships in general, they are a gift from God. Verse 10 in this verse is pointing you back to verse 1. So as we consider our life in the good providential hand of God, we then look down to our own hands and we are told what? What does it say? Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Do good work. Work hard. Do it well. Don't cut corners. Do it with the character of God shining through. Do good work while you can. New Testament say, do your work unto the Lord right do things that reflect him do things that matter do things that have eternal value this is the idea it's vital to see that eating and drinking and dressing and loving and working in these verses, they're not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's not for you to go home and make a checkbox. Okay, doing that, doing that, enjoying life, right? That's not what this is doing. It's representative of what it looks like to love life and live it to the full in the face of death. So if we're to tap into the preacher's worldview and give it a train of thought, um, I thought this was helpful, but a British commentator, Ian Proven, uh, he made a list. I, I thought I'd just read it to you. He says, ride a bike, see the Grand Canyon, Go to the theater, Which you can do that now, Do you know that, right? Learn to make music, visit the sick, care for the dying, cook a meal, feed the hungry, watch a film, read a book, laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. Play football, I imagine he's thinking the one with your feet, but we'll, we'll do American football here, right? Play football, run a marathon, snorkel in the ocean, listen to good music, ring your parents, right? Call your parents, write a letter, play with your kids, spend your money, learn a language, plan a church, Start a school, speak about Christ, travel to somewhere you've never been, adopt a child, give away your fortune and then some, shape someone else's life by laying down your own. You could probably add and subtract many things to that list. I would definitely subtract Marathon, but the point is that one day you will lay down your work and it will be done. And one day you will not hear the music And one day you will not see the sunset, and one day you will not hug that person you love. One day you will not pray with someone else to receive Christ. So live now. Don't worry about tomorrow, live now. Enjoy the gifts of God now. Do good work now. Don't wait, go, as if you intend to do it. I think this feels challenging because it almost sounds like we're hearing someone say, we're all going to die. And then someone says, yeah, I know, let's make a sandwich. We're like, what? Or someone says, the sky is falling. And you respond, yeah, you want some coffee? Well, let's open the bottle of wine, right? Doesn't make sense. So we need to consider how are these verses actually good commands, and these aren't just some fatalistic escapism from this world. How can you live and enjoy life in the face of unpredictable and certain death? Well, there's only one answer, you guys, and that is that you have to have hope. You have to have hope, and whatever you hope in has to deal with the reality of death. It has to. So where do you get it? Look up in verse 4. What does it say? After Ecclesiastes talks about the certainty of death for everyone, he says what? But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Has hope. Right? Hope is had and only had in the face of death as long as you are joined with the living. The problem is, this verse is first and foremost talking about right now. So it's saying, hey, you're alive. You're joined with the living in this sense. All of us in this room are. But that still doesn't fix the problem of death. Right, does it? My hope better deal with that. Right? Well, there is good news because there is one and only one who faced death willingly, and he defeated it. Colossians chapter one actually calls Jesus a certain name. Should be on the screen for you. Paul says Jesus is what? The firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn means there's gonna be others born from the dead. You don't use that term unless that's what you mean. Like my son, Tucker, I get the uh, lifelong honor of baptizing him here tonight. Okay, he's my firstborn son. If I, you don't know me and I sh- you show up afterwards and I said, this is my firstborn son. Tucker, you go, hey man, how's it going? Great job tonight or whatever you're gonna to say to him, right? And then let's just say you said, so what are your other kids' ages and names? And I said, oh, I don't have any other kids' ages or names. You might go, okay, I can technically see how that's your firstborn son, but there's not a secondborn or thirdborn or whatever it is, right? You assume, because you're confused, that there are otherborn kids, right? You may be even honest to say, oh, you said you're firstborn, so I assume there'll be other kids that'll be born to you, right? This is what the word means, right? We all get this. Guys, Jesus then is the firstborn of the dead, and he is so unique because he was the only one. He was the only one who knew that his death wasn't unpredictable. He was the only one. Jesus could read verses 11 and 12 that says, man does not know his time, and he'd go, oh, not me. Oh, I know exactly when my time is. Right, how many times did Jesus walk around this earth? How many times did he do that and say, it's not my time, it's not yet my hour, my hour has not yet come? How many times? People even tried to take his life, and he would get away easily, right? How many times did he say that? And then before he dies, the disciples aren't even aware of the threat of death so much that they're even found sleeping. And Jesus then finally says, my hour has come. Jesus is the only one who was born, right, whose life shouldn't have shared the same common fate of us all, that common fate of death. Yet he chose death. He chose it. He chose what we all try to avoid. Have you thought about that? I mean, John 10, 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, right? When it's time for me to die, I'll die, but I'm going to get up again. Who talks like this? My friends, Jesus chose to lay his life down for all of those who would receive him, and by receiving him, John's gospel says, you would have life in his name. So there is one, and there is only one, that forever lives. He lives right now. Jesus is alive. We don't worship a dead God. He is alive. And you can join your life to him today in faith to the extent that you know that even though you face death and it's certain, and even though you don't know when it's actually going to come, you know that you are joined with the living one. And therefore, death has lost its power over you. Do you believe that? I love the story. I mean, it's a heartbreaking story, but the story of a husband whose wife died and he was left to raise two daughters, two little girls. And they were in that process of grief, and one day they drive by, as the story goes, this huge semi-truck, and the shadow of that semi-truck overshadows their car. And that psalm that we even did as a call to worship, Psalm 23, kind of comes to his mind, you know, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and it hits him, and so he asks his daughters, would you rather be hit by the semi-truck or the semi-shadow? And they're smart girls, so they say, well, the shadow, of course. He said, that's right. That's right, and that's what happened to mom. Because she was joined with the living Jesus. But Jesus was hit by the actual semi-truck of death because of our sins so that anyone who believes in him would only experience the shadow of it. Guys, Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah. C.S. Lewis calls him Aslan, who was slain, though, You look at verse four, he who's joined with the living has hope for a living dog is better than a dead lion. He was the real dead lion, but he chose it, right? He tasted death so that we could be joined with him and truly start living tonight. One pastor said this week, if I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus, right? That's the Christian's story. If I die tomorrow, I'll be with Jesus. But if I live today, he's with me. He is with me. Being joined with Jesus, the living one, changes everything. Guys, it means that we can look at death and say, that is an evil thing. It should never be. But as we consider it, we look up to the one who's actually Lord over death. Lord over it, knowing that one day it will never even be a reality anymore. And so we take his words and we go, enjoy life as a gift while we have it. Remembering that this is just a foreshadowing of what is to come. I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea at the end of his Narnia series in the last battle book, where the children and the animals, they move from old Narnia to new Narnia. And one of the characters exclaims when they get to the new Narnia, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes it looks like this one. That sometimes looked a little like this. I see those who don't have Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it just looks like that's all there is to do. But in a very real sense, for those who have been joined with the living, eating and drinking is what we do because it looks a little bit like what we're going to do after we die. Enjoy it. Uh, I love how Anthony brought this up a few weeks ago just in announcements, right? We talked about the idea of samples, right? I mean, I love samples. You know, when you are go to a cafe and they bring around samples and give you a scone or something like that. Or you go to Costco and they give you all the samples. Like I used to love going to Costco and it's amazing how now I don't even like going, right? I didn't realize how, how powerful those samples were to get me into that door, right? But you eat a sample and it's good, you love it, right? I go around, it's like, you know, dinner or something. But every time you have a sample, it's not the full thing, is it, right? It's just pointing you towards the reality of what could be had. That's what a sample is. That's what we're talking about here. We know, guys, that there is a wedding coming that overshadows every joy that can be had in verses 7 through 10. There is a bread that we will break. There is a wine that we will drink. There are garments that we will wear. There is a spouse that we will enjoy forever that makes all of our present enjoyments feel like a sample. Revelation 19 on the screen. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Imagine that, just been by that, like a raging river and you're like, it's kind of like that. What's that sound saying? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let's rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As you're all invited, have you joined yourself with the living one? Life is a gift, it's a sample. Gift not gain is our motto. Hope not despair is our anthem. And so if you've been joined with Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, if you've placed your faith in him, that is more true to you right now than the chair that you sit on. And if you haven't done that, the invitation's there. I mean, if you've come with someone who's a Christian, talk to them. If you don't know anybody, talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. On with this, people have been declaring this question and answer for years. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and in death, you guys? The answer, I am not my own. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gift not gain, yeah. God, we pray that you would give us not only a love for your word, uh, but even a greater love to go out and actually live it. To know of its truth in such a way that we can't escape it. And so God, we just pray that you would speak words of life to us as we think about hard and sorrowful realities of death. God, help us to see the forever hope that will never be stolen from those who put their trust in you. So Jesus, we look to you, the one who chose death in our place, and we worship you tonight. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.